It's not just a little disagreement over a secondary issue in church like, should we sing hymns or modern worship songs? No, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to two places this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to also be in Genesis chapter 11. So Romans chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 11. As a pastor teacher, one of the most helpful ways to drive a point home in a sermon is to tell a story. So whenever I see that I'm losing a congregation, they're just kind of like paling off, their eyes are drifting, have that dead look in their eyes, uh, start to say this phrase. That reminds me of a story. And immediately everybody's eyes are back, everybody's tuned back in and they're ready to focus. Stories, illustrations, examples, they help drive home important truths. And even as a parent, though my children are now teenagers, both of them, so you know how to pray for my wife and I, um, when we were younger, or when our kids were younger, and we were younger, uh, we would try to have family worship and try to illustrate the gospel by using stories and by using examples that kids could grasp and understand. So it doesn't surprise me that Jesus illustrated the kingdom by using short stories that we call parables. And today in our text, in Romans chapter 4, we are going to see at least one great illustration from the life of Abraham with a supplemental backup from the uh, words of a song that David wrote. So we're continuing our study of the book of Romans, and now today we turn a great corner as we come to chapter 4. Paul has been arguing that righteousness, which is being right with God, has uh, the only way that we have that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and this has always been God's plan. And this was important for the Jews to know so that they didn't lose hope in falsely thinking they needed to uh, have a misplaced hope. And it was important for the Gentiles also so that they didn't actually lose their hope in thinking that they needed to become a Jew. So in chapter four, Paul uses the life of Abraham to prove this point, to drive this point home. He's using this as an example, as a story, as an illustration to prove the points that he's been making. So we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 today, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25 next week. But this entire chapter, all of chapter 4, is about Abraham. So today you could call this part 1, counted as righteousness, and then next week, part 2, the father of promise. But this is all about the story in the life of Abraham. So today we're going to see three big points, and as you're taking notes you'll notice that this outline reads more like a sentence or more like a statement. So notice with me on the screen, this is kind of a statement. Verses one through four, we are justified by faith. Verses five through eight, which is apart from works. And verses nine through 12, that includes outward religious action. So in case that one thing you're thinking of pops up into mind, it also includes that. And I had you turn and hold your place in Genesis chapter 11. So have that ready to go. Uh, we're going to be turning there soon, but let's first look at verses 1 through 4. Notice with me uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. 
He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we'll kind of stop there for a minute. Paul here turns the Romans' attention to the example of Abraham. So if the Jews had been arguing in their hearts during that time that, well, maybe a righteous Jew could still be justified by works. Maybe there's one. And then that Jew could then boast, well, no one would be a greater case study than Father Abraham. In Isaiah 41, 8, Yahweh calls Abraham, quote, my friend. And, and so God's own testimony about Abraham is recorded for us in Genesis 26, 5. Notice on the screen, God says this of Abraham. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So if anyone could stand up and represent the Jews and pose a chance of taking credit for being a good, godly Jew, it, of course, was certainly the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. So Paul calls Abraham here in this text, our forefather according to the flesh. In other words, Abraham is the natural ancestor of each and every ethnic Israelite. And if Abraham were justified by works, then he had something to boast about. But Paul goes on to ask, he asks right here in these verses, but what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15. Now we're gonna end up in Genesis 15, but I told you to go to Genesis chapter 11. So turn uh, there quickly as you should have had it held. Uh, and I didn't, so that's on me. Genesis chapter 11. So when you come to Genesis 11, you go, well, wait a minute, you're off by a chapter. Well, in Genesis 11, we look at the heading and it says the Tower of Babel, AKA Babylon. And this, this tower was man ascending to the height of his pride, the height of his power, the height of his perversity. God had given mankind a mandate to be fruitful, remember that, to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. So at Babylon or at Babel, mankind was seeking to defy God. And in defiance, let's not spread and, and, uh, and disperse, let's gather together and let's build upwards. Let's build a tower Let's make a name for ourselves rather than scatter to the ends of the earth and make Yahweh's name renowned. Let's make our name renowned and let's gather and let's go up. And so God confuses their language and people are then dispersed across the globe. And in Genesis 11, one of Adam's descendants, Shem, who is the son of Noah, has a descendant by the name of Terah or Terah. Uh, and Terah had at least three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, Haran ends up dying and so Abram and Nahor end up uh, married to some women. And Terah ends up bringing his entire family into the land known as Canaan. But for some reason, they come to a town called Haran, which has the same name as his son. He probably named that town after Haran. And so for whatever reason, Terah just stops there. And they don't end up going into Canaan. And then Terah dies. And so that brings us, uh, if you notice there, that brings us to Genesis chapter 12. So look at chapter 12, verse one. It says in verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him 
who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So verse 4, notice Abram's response. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So to summarize that, Yahweh tells Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And anyone who dishonors you, I'm going to curse them. And through you, through Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's a bit of a problem here. Back in chapter 11, verse 30, we get a very important piece of medical information uh, that has broadcast without HIPAA's uh, approval. And that is that Abram's wife, Sarah, is barren, which means she's medically unable to get pregnant and have children. And so God says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great and vast nation. Well, that implies children. So did God make a mistake? Did Abram marry the wrong woman? How can a couple who can't have children become the ancestors of a great people? And yet in the midst of that, Yahweh tells Abram to go where I'll show you. And did he disobey or obey? He clearly obeyed. So fast forward, that's kind of the... the, the foreshadowing of what's to come and then a bit of a problem. Fast forward to chapter 15. Turn with me there together. It's now been a few more years. And verse one says, after these things, uh, some things happened. Lot needed to be rescued. Just a couple little issues that happened. Uh, And so after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So notice what the vision is. In verse one, God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, I've got to give everything I own to my servant because I don't have a son. Well, notice verse uh, verse 4. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now you can just picture Abram going, yeah, no, no, I I can't. One, two, 10,000. Okay, I I ran out of time. Can't count them. And so then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Now at a later time, he says, now look at the sand. Try to count the sand. Obviously you can't do that if you've been to the beach. But he says, so shall your offspring be. Notice verse six. And he, Abram, believed the Lord And he, Yahweh, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6 is absolutely critical to understanding the Bible. So if you miss this, you essentially miss everything else important. 
So now is not the time to walk out of the theater to get popcorn and you come back and you miss Darth Vader saying to Luke, no, I am your father. That is not the time to walk out of the theater. This verse, verse six, is incredibly pivotal. This verse is quoted in our text in Romans four, three different times. In verse three and verse nine and in verse 22, which we'll look at next week. It's also quoted in Galatians 3, six, and it's quoted in James 2.23. Very pivotal, important idea that Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So I want to spend a minute on this so we understand what this really means. What does it mean to have this counted to us as righteousness? Well, the word counted in Romans 4 is in the Greek logizomai. And you guys say it with me, logizomai. Go for it. That was good. Good try. Uh, It's a tough one. I thought it was logizomai, but it's logizomai. So this means to impute, it means to account, it means to reckon, or it means to be credited. It's essentially an accounting term that means God credited to Abraham a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Paul uses this word 11 times uh, in chapter 4 in its variant forms. When Paul wrote to Philemon regarding Onesimus, He said, if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Credit it on my account. If he owes you anything, I'll take care of the bill. That's the word. Uh, uh, One of the New Testament scholars says, Abraham possessed righteousness in the same manner as a person would possess a sum of money placed in his account in a bank. Remember, I said this at Easter, but on St. Patrick's Day, many Americans woke up to find an undeserved sum of money suddenly credited to their bank account. And some of you didn't. Um, But those who did receive a stimulus check did nothing to earn it or to deserve it, but they freely received it, whether you wanted it or not. And yet God credited to Abraham righteousness. So one person said, it's not that God exchanged Abraham's faith for righteousness in sort of a trade. That would give some sort of merit to faith, which cannot pay the debt of our sin. He says, rather, faith is the means by which we lay hold of God's promise in Christ. Abraham believed God's promise about the Savior who would come, and God credited the work of the promised Savior to Abraham through his faith. Christ's substitutionary death paid the just penalty for the sins of those who will trust in him. So it's so pivotal, so important for us to understand this as Christians and even as Protestants. Incidentally, the Roman Catholic Church would say, well, we believe in justification by faith, but they don't believe that we have an imputed righteousness. They believe we have an imparted or infused righteousness. So according to Michael Horton, he says that this means that the believer must cooperate with and assent to that gracious work of Christ and only to the extent that Christ's righteousness inheres in the believer will God declare that person justified. So, We don't believe that. We don't believe that I need to participate. So then if I do my part, then God does his part. Now I'm good to go. Uh, The idea of of this justification of logizomai, it's not an arbitrary idea. This is absolutely critical in our understanding of Romans, in our understanding of Genesis, in our understanding of the Bible, and in our understanding of the entire Christian faith. Now notice what happens next in Genesis 15. Look at verse 7. Uh, Look at what happens from the example of his life. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. 
But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this seems a little bit strange, and it's going to seem even more confusing, but we'll get an understanding in a minute. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's a foreshadowing of Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's sovereign work was happening even behind the scenes in directing Israel to Egypt. He's like, don't worry about that, Abram. This is what's going to happen with your, your offspring, meaning Israel, but there's one singular seed, one singular offspring that will bless all the nations, and he's to come. Well, look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It's kind of a picture of God passed between these pieces. Remember, he had cut the carcasses in half. On that day, the Lord, Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes on uh, to extend that uh, and explain that. What is going on in this passage? Abram cuts these carcasses. He falls asleep. He wakes up and God makes a promise to him. Well, Jeremiah 34, I want you to jot that down, look at it later. Jeremiah 34 explains that when two parties want to make a covenant, they would cut an animal in half. They would separate. Just think of how much carnage that would be. There's blood everywhere. They separate the two bloody carcasses on either side of a pathway. And then both parties walk between that bloody path. And they essentially speak out loud the terms of the covenant, repeating them as they walk and tread through the blood. Now, I'm thankful today for signatures and handshakes <laughs> instead of, hey, do you have, a, do you have a, a, a goat? Anyone? Yeah, let's cut it up. No, I'm thankful for um, this new way of making a covenant. But see, God in effect is saying, Notice what happens. God doesn't say, cut the animal and then I'll walk halfway and make the promise. You walk the other way. I'll meet you in the middle, Abram. Notice that he causes Abram to fall asleep. When Abram wakes up, God has already passed through. In other words, what God is saying is, I am cutting, and that's the actual phrase, I'm cutting a covenant with you. I'm cutting a unilateral covenant with you, Abram. You don't need to sign your end of the bargain. The certainty of this covenant is not based on you and your performance, Abram. It's based on me and my faithfulness. So I'll do the work, the full work. You enjoy the work and trust me to do the work. You see, we don't make a covenant with God. We enter into it by faith. So with that as an understanding of what God had done with Abram, and there's much more to unpack there. We don't have time today. Look back with me at Romans chapter four. God had made, he had cut this covenant with Abram, when we come to Romans chapter 4, he says in verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. 
So look at verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. There's that word counted again. So you can credit your account in one of two ways, right? You can either, and we'll put it on the screen, you can either receive a gift or you can receive a wage. So you can freely receive money to your account or you can go and work for it. Now, I don't know what your first job was. We all have had our first job. My first job was scooping up golf balls on a driving range right next to the interstate outside of Atlanta. And at that time, my wage was $4.25 an hour. That was minimum wage back then. And yes, I know my kids joke. They're like, oh, they actually use money back then. I get it. I get it. But remember, remember back to that time when you received your first paycheck, all of us, whether our first paying job was awful or awesome, minimum wage or higher, we can all agree on two things. All of us wish that that pay was a little bit higher. And none of us wrote a thank you note to our employer for our paycheck. Why? Because we earned it. I went out and I pushed that dumb cart in the muddy swamp as golf balls are flying over my head. And I collected whatever it was, $16 for that, that hard day's work. And I earned it. I deserved it. Now, if someone you know hands a card to you and inside there's a financial gift, uh, then it's right to say thank you, to express gratitude. Thank you for that. I didn't expect that. That was a blessing. Uh, that was freely given and I didn't earn it. But see, a wage is different. A wage is earned and deserved. I love what Doug Wilson says. He says, work gets a paycheck and this is the antithesis of grace. You see, Abraham didn't work for it. He simply believed and his account was credited with righteousness because of his faith. And that was separated from any works. And that's really what the second section is getting at. So we'll spend more of our time now in Romans uh, in the next few verses. Look at verse five. Verse five continues this train of thought that developed from verses one through four. In other words, the one who works expects to be paid a wage. So notice verse five with me. He says, and to the one who does not work, who's not trying to work for their salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, please don't miss, don't skip over that little important phrase that says, him who justifies the ungodly. Don't miss that. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the righteous who are justified or the godly, it's the ungodly. That deserves an amen because that was you and I. You and I were the ungodly. You and I deserve condemnation. The wages of sin, the work that we do in sin, earns us death. That's what we've earned. And yet God declares the ungodly who have faith in Christ, he declares us right with God because of the finished work of Christ. So because of the finished work of Christ, when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. Now at this point, Paul steps aside from his example of Abraham and he says, guys, there's another exhibit. There's another great important figure in Judaism who also agrees with this, our greatest King David. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 32. Look at verse six with me. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here's the quote of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So you and I in Christ are blessed. But did you recognize right there in verse seven, the word count, or actually it's in verse eight. Paul recognizes 
that, and again, Paul incredibly studied, he recognizes that David in Psalm 32 sings about Logizomai. So he quotes David to highlight that God has performed a double, double imputation. So negatively, God will never count our sins against us. But positively, God counts or credits our account with righteousness as a free gift by faith altogether apart from our works. So he says, quoting David, the one whose sin is covered, the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, the one whom the Lord does not impute his sin against him is indeed a blessed man, a blessed woman. And none of this is done by works, it's done by faith. Again, Doug Wilson says this, he says, works are connected to things that men would love to have, but which they cannot have. Men love the idea of being a standard of righteousness unto themselves, and this is why they loathe and despise every form of free and sovereign grace. And free and sovereign grace repulses every form of works, striving, earning, moralistic, tiptoeing, meriting, goody-two-shoeing, shucking, or jiving, whatever that is. But there is an upside. The reason that you are saved at all is because you're saved by grace. So at this point, Paul again answers his objectors using the form of argument that we've been learning about known as diatribe. Remember from chapter three, what diatribe is? A diatribe is when you begin to engage in a fake conversation with yourself. Are you saying, yes, I am saying. So uh, he begins to answer his objections in real time in this third section. So we'll spend a little more time in this. And that is that this includes outward religious action. So notice verse nine. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or only for the uncircumcised? Well, the answer to that would be, well, no. No, it's not only for the circumcised. And circumcised here has less to do with the foreskin. It's simply shorthand for describing the Jew. So when he says circumcised, uncircumcised, don't you know, like go there mentally. He's just talking about the Jew or the Gentile, okay? So notice the rest of verse nine. He says, for we say... Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It's almost like, did you miss that earlier? He keeps repeating that, so don't miss it. But here's the objection, verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham's asking the question or having his diatribe like person asked the question, hey, did Abraham have faith before or after he was circumcised? And that was an easy answer for the average Jewish boy or girl attending Saturday school. It was very easy for them to answer. We just read Genesis 12 and 15, but it's not till chapter 17 in Genesis that Abraham is given a seal or a sign of circumcision. That's about 14 years at least after the covenant that God had cut with him and God had credited him with righteousness because of his faith. So if you're following Paul's argument here, he's saying the circumcised Jew can't look to Abraham as an example of, well, see, it's just all about following Mosaic law covenant. It's all about these outward religious action, including circumcision. That's my hope of justification. You can't look to that anymore. So if it's true of Abraham, it must be true of everyone. So notice what Paul goes on to say, the rest of verse 11. He says, the purpose was to make him, this is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised 
so that righteousness would be counted, there's that word again, to them as well. And verse 12, to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see, it isn't about circumcision whatsoever. It's about faith. Abraham's faith preceded Abraham's circumcision. So Abraham might be the father of all ethnic Israelites according to the flesh. That might be true. But spiritually, Abraham is the father of all who believe and trust in Christ. I was in Mexico at a friend of mine's church, a great church planner, uh, Calvary Chapel Rosarito. And at this point, he was teaching Romans 4, this exact text. And he had the entire church stand up and do Father Abraham. We were all singing it. We were spinning around. I was like, this is silly. Um, But I can't get that out of my head even as I read this text. So his little uh, silly example worked. We're not going to do that today. Don't worry. Micah, we're not doing that after service. Promise. Kids might be doing it next door. But notice what he's saying here. How controversial this would have been to the the Jews who are sitting, listening to this being read. Wait a minute. Are you saying Abraham is the father, not only of the Jew, but of the uncircumcised Gentile? Uh, Are you serious? Are you asserting that that's true? You see, ancient Jews would not allow Gentile converts to Judaism call Abraham our father. If you were a Gentile, which most of us are, and you wanted to convert to Judaism, they would say, no, no, you can't say our father. You have to say your father. You have to to call Abraham your father, meaning he's our father. And only natural-born Jews had the privilege to call Abraham our father. And so Paul tears down that distinction. He's saying, no, 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 there's not two families here. There's one family here, not the circumcised family and then the uncircumcised family. No, Abraham's the father of all who would believe. That's how we began our call to worship this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 19 that Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, making the two one. We are now one church, one people. So this ethnic border wall made the religiously outward ethnic Jew very, very happy. They like the wall. The wall keeps out the unclean sinners, and it gives me the perceived advantage and the favoritism. But see, they were wrong. There is no favoritism. God never intended them to build a wall, but to build a bridge. Even the Jewish temple included a court for the Gentiles where God's fame could be extended to all the nations. And now in Christ, we have one body. So praise be to God. As we have learned over and over in Romans and throughout all the scriptures, God has not counted our sins against us. He has imputed Christ's perfect righteousness to undeserving, wretched sinners like you, and of course, wretched sinners like me. As we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We'll continue this train of thought next week, and I want you to read ahead the rest of Romans chapter 4 as we get kind of a a realization of this promise, and we'll do some more digging into Genesis. But for a few minutes before we wrap up today, I want to apply this important text to our lives. So if you're taking note, I think this can be applied at least in three ways. Number one, we talk about works-based salvation, that I can be saved by my works. It always frustrates and it always fails. So at the core of each person's religious and idolatrous motivation 
is a notion that I can save myself. So if you're here today or you're watching or you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, maybe you adhere to some sort of faith, whether Western or Eastern religion or a cult group, every group has at its core a fundamental principle of salvation from plight in the world. There's plight out there. I need to escape it by doing some type of work. So for the Buddhists, it's essentially understanding four noble truths and journeying down the eightfold path. If you're a traditional Jew, then repentance, circumcision, keeping the law would be sufficient. If you're a Hindu, well, then I work off karma through my actions, through my devotion, through my knowledge, through reincarnation. Uh, Muslims would ultimately place their faith in having their good deeds outweigh their bad works. Some people trust in liturgical practices. They participate in church sacraments. They think just by participation in the sacraments, I'm good to go. That justifies me before God. But whether it's Allah or Buddha, Krishna, Moses, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, self-realization, meditation, even if you come to a church building and take communion and have someone dunk you, none of those things in themselves offer us right standing with God, do they? They offer us a method or an ideal or a philosophy or a ritual or a rule that we must keep that supposedly makes us right. In short, and I'm not the one who came up with this phrase, but in short, religion says get to work. Get to work. It's time to go to work. Let's do this. And I call this do-it-yourself salvation, DIY. You guys know this. You go on Google and search DIY. It's everything now. DIY everything. You can DIY um, oil changes, which I've done before. DIY your own taxes. DIY home improvements. <laughs> Some of those are funny to look up. DIY pest control, even DIY weddings. And with all this advice, you'd think people were getting better and better, but they're not. In fact, Home Depot, uh, or Lowe's actually, Lowe's had to recall one million books that had been given, um, been selling from the 70s because one of the um, chapters had misinformation on how to install electrical wiring. And everyone doing DIY wiring was getting electrocuted. See... That's what it looks like. I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to, I'm going to try a little harder. And we know the opposite of get to work is what Jesus triumphantly proclaimed from the cross, which is it is finished. So works-based salvation will always frustrate. It's going to frustrate you. It's going to fail you. You can't be saved by your works. You're saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who is imputed credited, counted to your account, his perfect right standing with the Father. So because that's true, number two, we must end all boasting that does not conclude at the cross. We sang it earlier that we're not to boast in anything, in any of our achievements. How can we do that? How can we as Christians boast in what we've done as if God hand-selected the cream of the crop Right? I'm just going to pick the cream of the crop. I mean, have you noticed how not awesome we are? <laughs> I'm in Christ because of some special thing that I did. He looked before you know, eternity passed and he knew who would select him. That's why he chose me because he knew I was that awesome. I did something really special. That's why I'm a Christian. Like I, I went and I understood the four spiritual laws or I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was eight days old. So I'm good to go. I'm good to go. Or even this. My parents raised me right. I have good values. And I may not be perfect, but God knows I'm a good person. 
Listen, in 1 Corinthians, Paul loosely quotes Jeremiah 9, which reminds the wise, the strong, and the rich not to boast in wisdom, riches, or strength, but to boast in God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. <laughs> That's us. That's me. We're the low, the despised, the things that are not. So there's not much to boast in there. In, in fact, in Galatians 6, this is really uh, an important verse. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, there's simply no place in the Christian's life for boasting. You can't boast for your salvation. That was all God. You can't boast in your giftings. Those have been endued by the Holy Spirit. You can't boast about your blessed life. That's granted to you by a good and sovereign God. We certainly can't boast about our Christ-likeness. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit in and through us. And the irony is if we do start boasting about how Christ-like we are, now we're not Christ-like. <laughs> so if Abraham couldn't take pride in how well he kept the covenant because it was God's to keep, if Abraham couldn't take pride in all the children that he fathered because it was God who opened barren Sarah's womb, remember he tried with Hagar, if Abram couldn't take pride in circumcision because that came after God had counted to him righteousness, then believer, you must end all boasting that isn't in and of the cross. You and I are not God's gift to ministry. We're not God's gift to the Christian faith. You and I are sinners who have been saved by his amazing grace. You and I, my favorite phrase now, it's a, it's a Puritan phrase, you and I are brands plucked from the fire. Uh, we're headed for damnation and he plucked us out of the fire. Chuck Smith says, glory for my salvation should always be given to God. Yet my flesh delights in self-glory. How I'd love to take credit for my salvation and I keep trying. Every time I say, God, there must be some good in me somewhere, he lets me fall flat on my face. There is nothing in my flesh about which I can glory. Amen. Well, finally, number three. My challenge for us is that we cherish and defend the power and importance of justification by faith. We learned this phrase last week, five solas, sola fide, faith alone. It's not just a little disagreement over a secondary issue in church like, should we sing hymns or modern worship songs? No, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. Martin Luther called justification by faith the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. He said, if, the, if this article of justification by faith is lost, then all Christian doctrine is lost. And he argued it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. Without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. I don't know about you, that sounds important. That strikes me as important. So we can continue meeting as a church, but if we depart from sola fide, from faith alone, we're no longer a true church. Like we can be justified by some other means. We're no longer a true church. We can continue sending and supporting and praying for missionaries to unreached people groups. If we lose justification by faith, sola fide, we're no longer a true church. We can serve our community. We can sing songs. We can teach good morals. We can bless our children. We can warmly welcome strangers into our homes. We can model impressive lifestyles that are worthy of emulating. But if we depart from sola fide or the, the doctrine of justification by faith, 
We're no longer a true church. And thus, by definition, Spurgeon says, any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. Wow. You see, at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church published the canons and decrees of Trent to attack justification by faith alone. And this is what many Catholics call the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And here in the 1990s, many evangelicals signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, and they wanted to push justification by faith alone off to the sideline to have unity. And yet, it's important for us to cherish and defend the power and the importance of justification by faith. If there's a church in town that has departed from this, and there are, then they're no longer a church. Oh, they can use the title. They can put it on their sign and have a website and use sunbiz.org to register them, but they're not a church, according to what the Bible defines. Stephen Cole says, justification by faith plus works cannot be right. We, and I want you to think about you, we cannot politely agree to disagree on the core of the gospel. Thus, for your own salvation, for your being able to resist the winds of false doctrine blowing in our day, and for your being able to present the gospel clearly to those who are trusting in their good works to save them, you must be clear on this truth. God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus Christ. Now, as we close, I implore us as his renewed people, as we close today, to just behold our God in his glorious work of salvation through the work of the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is what we boast in. We put all of our hope, all of our faith in Christ alone. Amen? Let's stand together and we're gonna sing, Behold Our God. We're reminding ourselves to fix our eyes on our King. Nothing compares with Him. So our job is to come and simply adore Him. So as we sing, reflect on your salvation, the work that Christ has done corporately, cosmically, but the work He's done independently and personally in your life. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you that we have been justified by faith alone. This is a gift you counted to, uh, to us righteousness, just as Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Lord, we thank you for the incredible doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith. Today, we glory in the cross. We behold our God, and we thank you, Lord, that the work is complete. So Lord, forgive us when we turn aside to try and add to our faith we try to supplement with our good works. Lord, we're not saved by our works, but unto good works so that we can extend your glory to the nations. Lord, we thank you that we are in Christ today. We worship you and we behold you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.